Well, Rick, you know your birthday is yeah. coming up. Yeah, it's a biggie. Yeah, it is. It's big six zero six zero. And yeah. I wanted to get you something special, so I booked Mitch Weissman, and yeah. you know Mitch Weissman. I do. And I do. We, you're going to love him. Uh, our listeners are going to love him. But you'll have to wait till after this. Okay. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Man Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. It's uh, time to uh, do another interview, Dave. And and you know how excited I get when we have a Beatles related interview. And you've we've done a, quite a few of them. Well, you've done a couple. You never tell me when you do the Beatles. <laughs> so I had to book this one in order for me to get on it. Well, this is this is a treat. Uh, it's not actually Paul McCartney, but it's a pretty close facsimile. Please welcome to the show the man who played Paul in the original cast of the Broadway show Beatlemania, Mitch Weissman. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm waking up at, with the rest of you. Here we go. Yeah, he's <laughs> we, lo- we love waking up the, the, the musicians at like It's 4.30 your time right now. No. Yeah, whenever yeah, you... Well, look- that was the old days, but right now, right now, I'm just waking up like a regular human being and going to sleep early. <laughs> so the the original Beatlemania show was a huge hit on Broadway. It came out when the Beatles reunion actually was still possible. I mean, John Lennon was still alive, not living so far away in the Dakota there in New York. And right. y- you actually met John and Yoko a few times, didn't you, Mitch? Yes, I did. I mean, I lived on 74th Street off Central Park West. They, of course, were Dakota on 72nd. Uh, um, I had not seen them in the neighborhood, but event- eventually I met them three different times. Uh, as I describe it, the first time shaking head to toe, the second time waist to waist to toes, and then the third time goofing on them. Uh, <laughs> but we were it was uh, but they we became you know acquaintances. And the story that a lot of my friends tell me I'm an idiot for is the very last time we met. I was sat on the stoop with with them in front of the Dakota, and then they eventually asked me to ask me up for tea, and I said. No thanks. I've got things to do. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Wow! I, I had nothing to do except, that the, as far as I was concerned, the the relationship was growing from each time. And the last time was a nice twenty minute conversation about everything from uh, Double Fantasy coming out to the Playboy article to things like that. And then eventually, and I just figured this was going really well. I'm not going to push it. So um, this was in November, just before he was killed. So it was it was. Uh, it was crazy, you know. So I stayed in touch with Yoko for a few years after that, but I haven't in a lot of years. But they were uh, they were very very nice and very very funny, and uh, it was it was great. It was a lot of, it's nice to have made inroads into a nice relationship. Yeah. So none of the Beatles ever saw the show, but their family members did, right? I read a yeah, ton of stuff. John John told me that Julian had seen it, and for the very first time we met, um, I was walking from the hardware store to the supermarket back to my apartment on 74th street just off central park west and i was coming up columbus avenue and they were coming down columbus avenue john and yoko and a third person and in my mind i'm stopped on the i'm wearing my aviator prescription glasses you know you basically you're going out like a woman in curlers going please god don't let me meet anybody i know uh so you know you're, you're two years ago bell bottoms whatever so, i mean i'm walking down the street with all this stuff in a in a bag um curtain rod no shelf rods to put up shelving in my apartment and i and i hear this voice boom out well good morning paul how are you paul and in my mind i'm seeing them coming towards me i'm going holy shit it's john and yoga and about the holy shit part gets out of my and that's when he said hello so 
they stopped and talked to me and uh, whoever he was with, they said, you know, he said, oh, good morning, Paul. How are you, Paul? Look, honey, it's Paul. And she's like laughing. And uh, and uh, he says to me, you know, uh, my son, he says, I, he, you're still doing it. I said, yeah. He says, my son, my 16-year-old saw the show and said, dad, the guy who plays you, plays you doesn't look much anything like you, but the guy who plays Paul looks just like him. You got to see him. You got to, you got to see him. So, and he was just very, very nice. And eventually he actually said we might to his friend, we should use him on the television thing we're thinking of. And I just said, uh, I live down the block. Yeah. <laughs> he goes to me, don't worry, I know how to find you. And when they walked off down Columbus Avenue, this is right after a snowstorm. So the place looked kind of magical and white. And I look around, there's no one on the street at all. At, there's no one. So it turns into a Jerry Lewis moment. Of, Did you? <laughs> and you know i'm looking up and down the street. there's nobody there i'm racing down the street to my house uh and um, i'm get to my apartment which is five floor walk up and i get to the top and then i turn it to uh, lou costello <laughs> I, 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 so, yeah i mean you know my my uh then partner was saying to me but uh, well, what's wrong? Calm I said, down. Lassie. So, Lassie's I, I in the mill. What's going on? I think, the, I think the one word I could get out was Lennon. But it was, so then I, I met them a few other times after. And of course, the last time was the two or three. They were, they were killed. So, um, but they were very, very nice and very friendly. And um, always concerned. He always used to me, are you still doing it? Are you still surviving? The very last thing he said to me before that I left was, um, you know, are you still doing the show? And I said, yeah, I'm, try I'm trying to get out. He says, well, let's. Being fair, it goes to your beetle. It's just as tough to get out, no matter what scale it's on. So I wow. said, because I had said to him, I said, well, I said, he said, I really can feel for you. I said, well, let's be honest, the scale's a little bit different. He said, nope, once you're a beetle, it's just as tough to get out. And, uh, wow. And then, yeah, yeah, it was it was very nice. And of course, then I turned down the invite to tea. But um, what can I say? I was just being trying to be a nice guy and not crowd the situation. But yeah. didn't uh, didn't uh, Paul's in laws see the show too? I don't know the Eastman everybody saw things and they, they the the Beatles tried to stop it for years and it didn't get stopped what didn't help it was the later on the bus and truck shows which were big massive shows still and had projections and screens but they didn't have as much multimedia so it turned into a more or less like a Beatle concert some footage whereas the original show which we did at the Blackstone and we did at the uh, the Schubert Theater in mm -hmm. Chicago oh yeah right um, which was great that we were left when we left in California, we came right to the, uh, the Blackstone and it was great. Right in 1978, right after the riots, um, pretty crazy. So, uh, but we had, a, we had a wonderful run there, but the, um, the show was started to wane down into like touring bus and truck companies. So the Beatles kind of filmed those performances that showed that it was more of a concert as opposed to a multimedia experience so the lawsuit went on with the suing and the legal entanglements went on for years um until 1985 when they got an injunction and that happened and i was speaking to david krebs the show was produced by steve Lieber and david krebs uh that happened because they at one point in time the beatles actually sent a the judgment saying we want to become partners with you guys and for a million dollars cash settlement we will give you the rights to any future performances. And when I saw this, then Lieber and Krebs called me in the office. And in my mind, I was sitting in my 30s, and I'm going, this is great. We can actually do the solo years. We can do whatever yeah. we wanted to, wanted to do. And um, the insurance company that handled the lawsuit turned the offer down. 
Um, wow. And when the offer got turned down, they hired another set of lawyers who promptly lost the case, and the Beatles got the injunction. Because um, the, the judge's decision was, you know, even though this was, you know, questionable, however you want to put it, um, they had a disclaimer, a six-point type, not the Beatles, an incredible simulation. Yeah, I was an expert witness for the for the show. Or they, Larry Iser, who was the Beatles attorney, um, asked me to come meet him. So I came in and he tape recorder down on the table and said, "You mind if I tape this?" So I took mine out of my pocket and went, "No, you mind if I tape this?" <laughs> so, so, so we both went back and forth across the table. I said, "You know, I'm a lawyer, kid. If you, you want to see my scrapbooks and everything, where the where the public says where the Beatles, but we don't." Um, or the interviews where the guys in the company are just happy to be playing Paul and John and George and Ringo. Uh, you can't, the show has indemnified itself. So if you want those, so I made him subpoena my scrapbooks for over a thousand bucks, made him do this, and they promptly asked for a settlement. Uh, the second set of lawyers didn't ask for my scrapbook, didn't ask for anything, and they lost the case. Oh, I spoke to David Krebs last year, the producer, he said, if we knew it was only a million bucks to continue the thing, we could have taken it out of our pockets. Yeah. Um, but he, that was that's the problem with compartmentalized management. Uh, Lieber was handling Beatlemania. Krebs was handling Aerosmith, ACDC, everything else. And he never realized it. So uh, some, you know, how a lawsuit like that can get lost in the shuffle is beyond me. Yeah, no it's, kidding. You know, it was I had a nice run and I was very happy. So not a problem. It was a college intern, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, some guy. You know. I got a really great paid internship, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is good. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about what it was like being Paul. I mean, I've known a few Elvis impersonators in my life and, and something happens to them when the lights come on. They they become Elvis in their minds. Did that right. happen to you when you were playing Paul, or was it just a I, role? Do you always it just? Was acting, it was an acting role. Man, when I was a musician before, uh, before, and then a little bit of an, an actor actually before I was a musician uh, or full time musician. But I ended up. To me, it was just a role on stage. I mean, I put it. I hung it up when I left the stage. I put it on when I got to the stage. Yeah. I didn't really. I didn't live it off the stage. Um, People, you know, the wore their Beatlemania jackets and all the other cast members and stuff. I didn't wear any of that stuff. I mean, I figured I had the face that was enough. But, yeah, you too. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, and even even Lawrence Juber and I laughed about it when he first met me. He said, well, you know, you don't look anything like him. And I gave him a big hug because we, we became friends from that point on. Because, you know, it's an approximation. And, of course, I was it was pretty close. If you get the right camera angles, it's like, oh, even that goes. Is that me or him? Um, so... It was an interesting time. I mean, I always thought of myself as me. I didn't try to go out and become noticeable. I didn't wear my Beatlemania stuff with me to draw attention, but I had enough of it. It was. But I mean, even was, even John yeah. saw you as Paul when he saw you on the street. He yes, even, I mean, even he, was, he recognized that, right? Yeah, and I, as I said, my hair was that brushed or whatever, and I had was wearing aviator glasses. He saw right through it, but well, yeah. you know, because I mean, so. He was always very nice about it, and people recognized me. And uh, it's, I've had I had some pretty funny experiences, and uh, and there were times before the show opened, and nobody knew there was another guy that um, I would be chased down the street. Like I got chased from Sam Goody once at a record signing thing for some other band. Wow! Down the block, like like Hard Day's Night, uh, <laughs> literally running, running for my life back to the theater. Um, and, you know, and those days, I mean, I, I didn't have contacts yet, so I had prescription sunglasses, which were, when Lennon met me, they were my regular glasses. But, but if I had wore my aviator prescription glasses, the resemblance was pretty uncanny, as they used to say. So people would just 
wave, say hi. I hear hi, Paul, all the time. Uh, Gene Simmons and I were recording. I was I was down visiting them. They were recording an electric lady, and say 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 had just come out. Yeah. Um, with Paul and um, and Michael, and as we're walking to the store, people are yelling, "Hey, Paul!" And Gene's going, "It's Gene." They're going, "Hey, Paul!" And going, it's Gene. And I looked at Paul. I looked at Gene. I said, "They don't think it." If you're not Paul Stanley, this designates me. Yeah, as, right. As, as, <laughs> so, and he laughed so hard he ran back to the studio to tell the guys. I just, they just all thought I was, I was. <laughs> they were calling to Mitch, but I thought they were talking about you. So, it was pretty funny. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, you get a lot, you get a lot of people saying hello to you, which wouldn't or, wouldn't ordinarily say. Ordinarily say hi to you. You know, the Which same thing happens to Dave whenever there's an yeah. un- Uncle Fester. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. when really? The, the, yeah. the Jackie Coogan convention. Yeah, whenever there's yes, Adam's yes, family. Yeah. The Christopher yeah. Lloyd convention. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> chase him down the yeah, street. It's, and it's just so heartbreaking when, when I when I have to, you know, to disappoint everybody there. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Uh, exactly. So, n- needless to say, your resemblance to Paul was a, probably a big part of the reason you ended up getting the role, I'm guessing. Um, yeah. When I when I walked in, Kenny Laguna, who's Joan Jett's manager right. and friend and keyboard player now, he's still with her. And um, he was uh, doing the auditions. And, I'll, and then when I walked in, I walked in with a, with another friend of mine, Jules, who he went to audition for Lennon. And I, it, it was a they were single auditions, so there weren't a lot of people. There weren't callbacks. We had, as Joe Pecorino said, the the John Lennon from Broadway said when I came in, and there were all these different era Beatles sitting in the room yeah. uh, for the callbacks. Um, but I went in there and they asked me to sing, uh, can you do yesterday and can you do, um, and I came on acoustic guitar and I looked very much like McCartney and Wings in 1976. Um, I hadn't seen his haircut. I had longer hair like Jimmy Page through all my band days on, on Long Island and stuff with Jimmy Crespo from Aerosmith and a bunch of other people. Um, I had decided to just get myself a haircut, but I went in there and I did, the, I did a part of yesterday and part of get back. And Kenny is writing furiously in his notebook in his, on his legal pad. And I have no idea what he's writing. So eventually when they called me back, I eventually saw what he wrote. He was just writing, um, looks just like Paul, sounds close. And he kept writing over those letters all the time, like a hundred strokes and on everything. Like he just kept writing over it and over and over it. So, they asked me, you know, when I come back, and what was funny was I had a drummer friend that was starting a tour of Godspell up in Rhode Island, and I said to them, no, I can't come back. And it was frantic on the phone call. And Steve Lieber, the producer, saying to me, what do you mean you can't come back? I said, I'm, I'm booked that day. So he said, can you come in in the morning? So, yeah, that was a long day. I came in in the morning, did my call back, and drove my drummer friend up to Rhode Island where I got, got him up there at, uh, at midnight and then drove back home. So it, it was, you know, I just didn't, we didn't know what it was for. We all thought it was for a commercial or something. Nobody said it was for a oh, Broadway really? show. Oh, really? You didn't know yeah. that it was a Broadway the, show? No, the original ads were the kind of like um, somebody had pitographed or made a, a a copy of like the Hard Day's Night cover in black and white. And it's on top of it, it appeared, it said, uh, wanted musician, singer, singers, musician, Beatle lookalikes for unique opportunity, call Mrs. Price at a New York number. And I remember my friend Andy Esposito, still my friend to this day, he was working at Sam Ash Music in, in Hempstead on Long Island. He called me and said, there's a flyer here. So he said, you should go do this. And I had a friend in from Pittsburgh, Carl Griffin said, who owns Pittsburgh Guitars. Or he 
did, um, he dragged me to the audition. That was as much as I was a musician and performer on stage. I was very shy. Um, you know, I did what I did on stage, and then, and then it was just me off stage. So they, he dragged me, and that's how the whole thing started. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I was reading the list of songs from the original show, and right. Um, you know, most of them are Paul songs. I, I mean, that, that was uh, that must have been pretty hard on your voice doing that every it was, night. It was the the original shows. The songs were like they were like thirty six of them, and ended up at twenty nine. Um, they took out if I needed someone. They took out. They took out uh, Tax Man. Took out a few other songs, and the reason that happened was because George Harrison decided he didn't want his songs in the show. He owned his his publishing. Ah. I remember with the fiasco with Dick James yeah. selling McLean music. George still owned his because he wasn't part of the catalog. So he asked for his songs to be removed while we were still in rehearsals. When the show opened up and became a smash, he sent his lawyer, I think Bruce Greg Kell, or that was either Ringo's lawyer, but he sent, sent his lawyer back to say, George would like to know if he'd like his songs back in the show. And the producers went, no. <laughs> so that's why they, that's, we don't need his songs now. Yeah. So that's why there were no Harrison songs in the show. But we that was the reason they came. Lieber and Krebs had pulled high schools, uh, music, looked at music radio station playlists from PLJ and stuff like that in New York, and saw that the most popular Beatles songs during that time were mostly, a lot of them were McCartney vocal songs. Yeah. Probably going off of the radio hits format. Right. I mean, I don't think, you know, Strawberry Fields probably wasn't a very big radio mm. hit, but we all know it's a, it's a killer song. Right. So they kind of tailored it that way. And to tell you the truth, my face, my voice didn't catch my face in 1978 i mean i started doing maybe five performances a week before i started sounding a little bit hoarse or much to the amazement and luck of destiny mccartney's live albums came out wings over america and Beatles released the hollywood bowl where you heard mccartney throw your voice so i'll never forget his manager came to see the show um and uh he said, you know, you sound just like Paul Live. And I went, I have, I have no choice. I mean, my, I mean, I'm going to give it all like, thank you. You know, you sound just like him. Thank you. So, um, so the understudies or the alternates, as we called them, uh, retailing, uh, he would perform on maybe, you know, three out of the eight shows a week until my voice would rest it and come up there. They put us up. When we performed the matinee performances on Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday, it was like Chase Sand. Because that's when all the kids would come. All the oh. school kids would be bust in, and there was a constant <laughs> low roar. Uh, there's a line in uh, McCartney would go uh, in the Hollywood Bowl, can you hear me? And the place would go nuts. And I would do the same thing to hear the audience go crazy. And we'd oh. look at each other and start laughing. Um, the monitor systems were terrible. I mean, not, not any, certainly better than what they had at Chase Stadium. Because right. John has been asking me, how do you do so many shows a week? said well we have monitors it goes no it can't it can't be because you know and they they had nothing right um <laughs> so we you know we had you know i had vocal problems for a little bit of time um um and then eventually as i say my my voice caught up with my face in 1978 i was able, able to perform all the shows um so it was a learning lesson as well i mean it was the greatest greatest singing lesson ever because you did the same songs over and over yeah, and right. upon them every time. Yeah. So it was really great. Yeah. So did you, so you're right-handed by nature, right? Uh, uh, I'm actually left-handed by nature. 
But you, um, but you played guitar right-handed, is that? Yeah, I played guitar right-handed because back when you are in 1960, whatever it was, there were no left-handed guitars available for anything. I mean, I actually right. brought up, I was brought up playing French horn, which is a left-handed oriented instrument. I was, I switched over to school system to mellophone, which is right-handed. So you have different fingerings. I, I had funny conversations with John Russell about that since he was a French horn player. Um, and I did that through high school, and then eventually when it came time to play guitar, my parents got me a right-handed guitar, and that's how I learned. Although when I was a kid and miming to the Beatle records like everybody else in the neighborhood in the basement, I had the test track it, and I'm strumming it lefty because that, that was my natural you know, inclination. When we did the show, they got me a left-handed bass and a right-handed bass, and what I would do was I would rehearse, but if I got... And the tough part wasn't the figuring out the fingerings with my right hand. So I, you know, performing lefty, it was hitting the right strings with my left hand. Total uncoordination for trying uh. to hit the strings. If I had taken a guitar and learned the broad strokes again and learned the strum and learned to do whatever, it would be fine. But you'll see me in the commercials playing left-handed, and that's me miming to the stuff I played right-handed. But I'm actually playing the notes if you watch it because I learned how to play it. But it's a little bit stiffer performance. So in rehearsals, if I got lazy, I would take the left-handed bass, flip it upside down, and play upside down righty. Um, and eventually the show opened and I played half the, now here's a brilliant thing, multi-million dollar production, they had left-handed Hoffners and right-handed Rickenbacker. Hmm. So I would play the show lefty and righty, depending upon what the what the use of the bass was. And that was confusing my brain big time. Oh my God, yeah. And uh. the reviewers came in Boston and on, on right-handed nights and once they said, once you get past the fact that he's right-handed it really doesn't matter it was very nice reviews and stuff he's great and so i went to the producer and said i'm going to perform righty so there's there's footage of me playing lefty but uh but i performed the show mostly after boston um most i did lefty and righty on broadway for a while but then i just stuck to righty because it was just more natural um and over the years other mccartney's and other people in different beetle bands said why don't you play lefty i go i'll leave that to you guys i'm perfectly I, yeah. I, have, I have enough of an issue with identity. I don't need to go left. <laughs> yeah. you know. And yet, when I was a kid, I, I could only bat left-handed. I could play dolls in both directions. That's to do with the ellipse, I guess. Um, but I could still only bat, you know, lefty. I, it's, uh, it's. I played. I played. I wrote with my left hand in school back in the '60s. They took it out of your hands. Sign of the devil. You learned how to write righty. So I do things right-handed. Okay. Um, and some lefty. You know, it, it all depends when it comes out. You know, uh, there have been a few Beatlemania cast members that went on to become famous in their own right. Uh, Marshall Crenshaw yes. played John, yep. right? Glenn yes, Burtonick, uh, who yep. joined Styx. Styx uh, and, the, uh, and the orchestra. He did, um, you know, like the electric light orchestra. Thing. Yeah, the right. Version called the orchestra, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Al Sapienza. Al uh, Sapienza is the, one of the funniest and talented guys I know. He started out as a ringo. Uh, yeah. And now, of course, he acts in everything. So, yeah. you know, he's, he's been the mobster for years on everything. Yeah, he was Mikey the... in The Sopranos, yeah. for those of exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he's great as right. an he's actor. Fantastic. I love watching oh, you him. See him. Yeah, you're right. You see him all the time getting shot at, you know, or yeah. with a tracksuit or whatever, you know. He's in Beverly Hills Cop. He's in, uh, I think, he's in Air Force One. I mean, he's, he's he does a lot of. You know, army stuff, military guys. And for years, he did a lot of lifetime, um, you know, Italian roles, uh, usually mobsters. Uh, he's in a bunch of different TV. He had a wonderful arc on uh, 
oh god what was the show that kevin spacey had where he was the oh uh, uh um big series house of cards big, yeah house of cards he had a big, yeah. wonderful arc in that he has an arc he was in suits which uh, now that it's streaming again, I will have to watch it because I never saw him on Suits. I didn't have yeah, that's a great show, so, by the way. You should check that amazing out. Amazing show. Yeah. I, I I watched the first bunch of seasons. Um, so now I can't wait to see where it goes. And when I saw Meghan Markle, I went, I know this girl. <laughs> right, exactly. That's right. She's in that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, those guys all became famous. But you also, you have done a bunch of stuff where you worked with other bands in the studio on the road tell us a, a few of the highlights of uh, your post Beatlemania years you already talked about kids well when i was doing the when i was when i was with Libra krebs i mean the management was acdc aerosmith uh a whole bunch of different bands and i actually i'm singing on kings and queens off of aerosmith i forgot what what was it done uh, night in the ruts no that's not it that was the one that came after one of their albums and I'm and the uncredited stuff and then a few other artists. But eventually what happened was I uh, ended up in the studio with Kiss um, writing. I wrote with them. We, Paul Stanley and I met at a party, Pepe Castro, who was in the Blues Magoos and Barnaby By and, uh, and a band called Balance, which had a hit in the 80s called Breaking Away. Um, Pepe's still around making tons of music and writing musicals but he had a party on july 4th weekend in a townhouse he lived in in midtown um and so everybody went to the party we all came there we all showed up there and i met paul stanley for the first time then oh actually it's not true they i them we met kiss in 1976 during rehearsals in new york they came into the room in, at sir studios in new york and they sat down in front of us paul and gene we knew they were somebody, but we didn't know who because there was again there was no publisher's photos. So eventually they told us, and then they picked up the song list and said, "Sing." So we sang for four hours wow. with them. Um, and as and Peter kept running in saying, "We're going to rehearse yet?" He, they would go, "No." I mean, eventually it was funny. We all six of us just looked back and said, "No, Peter, not now," because um, <laughs> he kept running in. Um, Ace was in the other room wondering where but he was, but he was happy with the booze and the catering. He told me later on, later on but he kept wondering, they make the guys make me come down here, and then they're not even in the room. It's like a, uh, that's it, a nice buffet. So, it was pretty good. So, so uh, but that's, we met them for the first time, but I hadn't seen him since 1976. Actually, no, they, they, they were doing a tour in 77, so they had us come to see them at the garden, and I saw them after, after that. Um, but Paul was at the party, and we met, and we talked for a bunch of hours, and he gave me his phone number and said, call me. And then almost very comically, I woke up the next day and went, I can't call him. My then wife said, why not? I said, it's Paul Stanley. I said, you just spent hours, she said, you just spent hours talking to him. I said, yeah, but I can't call him. It's Paul Stanley. And I'm not a kiss freak or fanatic, whatever it was, but I'm just kind of intimidated by the, you know, in my level, I was famous for whatever I did, but I didn't put myself in the same category of you know a professional musician like that so a year goes by and he, uh, this <laughs> he is another this is another john and yoko yeah. not going but up he, to the yeah hammer. he offered but you tea and you said forget it paul i don't like <laughs> yeah tea. he said call me so a year later a year later i same party and there he is and he comes up and he says hey all right i said fine he said how come you never called me and i tell him the story and he laughs and he punches me in the shoulder and says don't ever do that again um and from that point on, we were friends, Gene and I. And stuff. So I was writing with them when things would come to say, you, you want to try to work on some songs? And we did. And this was 
and nothing happened and nothing came out. Our relationship was based on the friendship as far as I was concerned, but they were, they said later on in an interview, you know, you're right with friends and then you don't use the material and there goes the friendship. They're all gone. He said, I, we had this, and I remember this phone call. I got a phone call from the record plant in LA. They were working on what turned into creatures of the night. Um, and they called me and I was on speakerphone and they're all going, hi Mitch, hi Mitch. I mean, you know, and, and uh, and Paul goes, I hate to tell you, but we're not going to use any of the songs you wrote. And apparently my response was, bummer. So when you come back on Tuesday, where are we going to dinner? <laughs> and the whole room just froze. They went, did you hear what we said? We're not using the songs. He said, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. That's fine. I mean, yeah. it would be nice, but where are we going? Where are we, where are we going on Tuesday? <laughs> so that endeared them, you know, endeared me to them. And, uh, and that's kind of the way I am. I have a lot of friends in the music business that started out as a possible business relationship but evolved into just friendship instead you know yeah. it doesn't it doesn't pay the bills but it makes me feel good i mean that's I, I, my ulterior motives have never really been that way um and uh, you know it'd be nice if something happened and usually when, when when it's right it happens right so that was that's how i ended up working with with kiss through the friendship relationship and then eventually remember paul when when animalized came out I had three co-writes He's, you know, they actually said, they said to me, what did you eat this year or something? Because these songs are great. I said, well, you forgot we wrote them together. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, thank you. I mean, there's a couple of songs that I've done with Gene over the years where I wrote almost the majority of it. And he felt guilty. He, there's a song called What You See Is What You Get, which is, which is actually going to come out this year on a, on a tribute record, um, unreleased material of ours. And at the time he said, you know, I can't use this. I didn't write any of it. I said, yeah, you did. You wrote you wrote, wrote part of it. I said, oh, let's make a deal. He said, I can't take any other writer's share. I said, yeah, you can. If you take 50% of the writers and I and I give you 50%, you give me my publishing, I'm, I'm, it'll, it'll work out just fine. But the song didn't make it on the record, um, which is a shame because now it'll come out and won't make any money anyway because it's streaming and everything right. else. You're going right. to get the 0.04 yeah. cents per yeah. unless, <laughs> unless somebody re-records it and puts it in a movie. It'll be fine. But other than that, no. But, uh, you know, I've got a, they were really great friends to me. If things, you know, drift off, I still will get an email from Gene occasionally if I email him. Uh, Paul and I haven't spoken in a while. Um, but from there, it led to a lot of stuff. The China Club in New York, which there was one in L- in Chicago as well, and there was one in L.A. I performed at the one in Chicago um, a few times. Uh, I had a band with Joel Danzig from Hamer Guitars, which Hamer is located outside of Chicago. So we opened for Cheap Trick a few times downtown. We played the Metro. Oh, cool. Um, I played at some outdoor festival as well. Um, and we, it was a lot of, we played the, we played, what's the rock and roll place near the rock and roll? Oh. Near the rock and roll McDonald's. There's a big Oh, the Hard Rock, yeah. The Hard Rock Cafe. It could be the Hard Rock now. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is. It was, it was something else. If the Hard Rock took it over, it makes perfect sense. Okay. But um, played there a few times. And then Nam, Nam. Was there in Nam all the time. So uh, Chicago, I love Chicago. And the Beatlemania run at the Blackstone was great. Also, also at the at the Schubert. So Chicago feels like New York to me. Yeah, I saw so the great. show at the Blackstone. Yeah, I saw it there. It was great. Uh, yeah. So, so tell us about Joni loves Chachi. <laughs> I was in New York. Uh, this was, I guess, 1982. I think is when it aired. Uh, when we were doing it, I was in New York. I, I blacked out that period. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. It's, Somewhere in that range, I can't remember now, but I was still, you know, what was great was it was, you know, a great time to live inexpensively. 
you know, because, you know, these 70s were the 70s. That was the days of one week salary equals your rent. Right. And you're making Broadway money. You, it's Your rent is covered for a couple of years, uh, especially if you don't spend it. And uh, we, I didn't. I, I knew I knew at 23 years old that this isn't how you start your career on Broadway and in a very recognizable role. And I also realized that I'd probably be typecast like Carol O'Connor, like those guys. Of course, they had more money. Travolta, any of those people that got typecast at what they did. Uh, and I wouldn't work for a while after Beatlemania. And I didn't because everybody thought I was English. Um, oh, that's funny. So I'd, And everybody thought I was a Beatle because everybody else who had tried to shop for Beatle um, there were very Beatlesque sort of people. And I remember having meetings with record company presidents and we're meeting them in clubs saying, yeah, I, I, I don't need to listen to your demo. I know what you sound like. I'm going, no, you don't. But, you know, you can't argue with them. Yeah. And the, the Kiss stuff actually legitimized me because I still look like McCarty. And this was the 80s. So I had leg warmers. You know, uh, you I didn't have the headband, you know, yeah. but, you know, and I, I still had my Beatle haircuts. And I was actually doing Beatle shows around the world, around the country. So I still had kind of a beetly haircut. I actually ended up having the worst mullet ever because I would just take my long hair down my back and then shove it in my white college shirt. So <laughs> and, and I'd have a beetle haircut, and then at the end of the show, I'd shake my hair out and feel like so. It was the worst haircut ever. Hey, um, no judgment. It, it, we're we're both yeah. former mulleters, yeah, right? So, yeah, yeah. so it, it worked for the, it worked for the time. But um, I. Uh, I did, I did um, you know, I, the music stuff worked very, very well, but it would legitimize me. It was the Kiss stuff because people would look at my face and then hear the music. I remember when we were there recording Animal Eyes, uh, I would come be visiting the studio because, you know, I had, I'd saved a lot of money with Beatlemania. And I also was, was went back to working in graphic design, uh, which I did before all that stuff. And was I just didn't want to keep spending my money. So the guy from Broadway was now working in the bullpen in an art studio. Um, and all the kids would rush to answer the phone because the people calling me were Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, John Waits, yeah, yeah, right. you name it. And they all wanted to answer the phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because, you know, you have those sort of friends. So why are you working in a studio? Because you have to work. What's wrong with that? Just <laughs> yeah. because they're your friends doesn't mean they're going to pay for you. So, um, so I worked, but I go in the studio and I'm not, I'll never forget one of these, it's like a movie moment. One of these kids at the front desk says, you know, you come here like every day, but what are you doing here? And playing through the control room door is Get All You Can Take, one of the heaviest tracks on Animal Eyes. And I say, you hear that song? And they go, yeah. I said, I wrote that song. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they look at the Beatles standing in front of them and they hear the Kiss song coming out of the control room. It was like, really? You know, so yeah. it, it legitimized, it legitimized me. In the terms of holy crap, you could do something more than just be be a beetle. So, uh, and then after that, I got to work with a lot of different people through the China Club, through uh, through meeting people and performing on stage with them, um, creating the jams. When I created the jams, it was always like a music music minus one thing. I don't know how old you guys. You said sixty. Yeah. There was a guy in New York, Floyd Saxton, who used to oh, sing yeah. songs. Yeah, you know, the, he would be miming to the songs or sometimes singing them. When I would do these bands, put these bands together, I would have pretty much all of Farmer, but be missing Mick Jones wouldn't come, so I'd play the guitar parts. Uh, when it was, I had all these, all these great musicians, they'd be missing, so I would be the front. Um, and I'd be the host, and I did it all gold with the undercurrent of music playing. So stick around, we'll be right back, and the music would come up, the lights would go down. So it was, it was pretty, it was a really fun time, and I got to meet so many people that way. Um, and I ended up, you know, doing different projects with different things with different people. 
But but Joni loves chachi. Yeah, so so you yeah, yeah, to get back to that. <laughs> I got that because I was sitting. Yeah, I had to talk about Tangent Man. That's me, Tangent Man. Off somewhere else. So I was sitting in I was sitting in my apartment. I get a phone call from Randy Clark. Randy Clark was a uh, was the second John Lennon on Broadway. And he says, "I'm sitting in Paramount Studio with Bobby Hoffman, the casting director's office. They're doing a program. They want to do a show here, episode based on Joni meets Paul in the." in the hospital she's a candy striper and he's suffering from exhaustion so he's in the hospital and she thinks it's paul mccartney she's trying to convince the guys it's paul mccartney so they want to know i told them i said well if you want to get a guy that looks like paul then you should be talking to mitch twice but until yeah. i get on the phone they they we talk about the whole thing they knew who i was and i got the role at the time i was actually musical directing and supervising a show called lennon off broadway um which was came over from the Everyman Theater in uh, in um, Liverpool and I was supervising and I was understudying the McCartney role because I didn't want to be McCartney in that show. Um, it's a show about John Lennon's life from childhood all the way through till the end. Um, and I had to, I was doing that show so Greg Martin, the guy who played Ringo and the other roles that I was understudying promised not to hurt himself <laughs> uh, Greg Martin, by the way, Greg, Greg Martin, by the way, was George Martin's son. Um, oh wow! Is is still George Martin's yeah. son? Yeah. He got the he got the show by not telling anybody who he was. Then he got into the show. He said, "My dad is George," and he came. George came down and had a and uh, and had a big conversation with all of us at, at rehearsals above Radio City Music Hall. Wow! It was really great. That's when I first met him. Um, but anyway, not to digress some more. He, uh, I get the call and I, they You're find me out. You're answering this question, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, we, we do. Joni loves Chachi. It was great. It was a fantastic, uh, memorable experience. Um, I remember being shown over that, uh, I guess it was Laverne, what's it, what's it, Laverne Shirley? Penny, um, Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall, Marshall came over to, to get me to bring Oak, take me over to Laverne and Shirley set. I remember it was surreal. You're sitting in, you're sitting in, um, uh, the commissary and there's Sylvester Stallone with, with fake blood on his arm and whatever. <laughs> and wow. we eating lunch. You know, uh, it was quite amazing. I became friends with Gary Marshall back then. We were just acquainted with them. Years later, he remembered the experience and, and had, had a nice uh, sort of uh, interview session with a bunch of people. He actually told people a story about that. Um, how this, this kid was great. You know, so <laughs> he was a very nice guy. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I did Joni Love Chachi. And they offered me a Paramount actually offered me a player's deal, like Metro Studio contract, um, and ABC, and I turned it down because my dad, but amidst all this stuff that was going on, my dad was fighting liver cancer, uh, oh, and I couldn't yeah. see myself relocating out to California, even though he kept saying, go, go, go. So I actually didn't take the contract deal, um, and they understood totally, and uh, you know, it changed the course of history. I wonder what happened. I, I always, I really would love to have done episodic television like Al did. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God, no, no kidding. I mean, yeah, it would have been yeah. a lot of fun. You, so, and you I remember been, you could have been was, killed by Tony Soprano. Yeah. I could have been. Yeah. <laughs> I could have. I could play a lot of Italian roles. The Jewish kid, Italian kid, yeah. same thing. Whatever. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, Mitch. This has been fun. I yeah, this has been fantastic. Really enjoyed this. This uh, the nice uh, birthday present for yeah. me to get to talk to you. Well, happy you birthday! Get me? Exactly. What are you going to get me? Uh, I don't yeah. know. We'll have to. When's your birthday? Yeah, uh, I'm talking to Rick. I'm September, not, I'm not yeah, expecting so, anything oh. from you. I'm expecting it from Rick. <laughs> I want Gene Simmons to call. <laughs> right, right, right. Scott Pan, bust baby. 
Yeah, really. All right, I'll, I'll I'll try to talk to Scott. He hasn't talked to me in years. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Probably, thinks, a, probably thinks I'm a full blown Democrat. Yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll keep Scott Scott out of it. Yeah, Anybody else it. would be great. But Scott Bayo, you can right. keep him out of it. That's fine. but thank you, well, Mister. I love. By the way, I love your the name. You the name of the podcast is Minutia Man, correct? Right. Yes. All right. All right. I love it because I mean that's I did an interview with some other guys once on a podcast. They said, "Boy, is he full of minutia." Oh, there so, you go. There you go. <laughs> so I have plenty of it. So it's finally I'm finally on the right podcast. Thank yes, you, so you are. Well, yeah, this has been great, and uh, you know I always let's keep in touch whenever yes. you're in Chicago. Yeah, and if Man, we if yeah. we have to escape to a Canada, we'll stop at your house on the way there. <laughs> yeah. All right. That sounds good. I can plan your room. All right, guys. Thanks, thanks buddy. Thanks, Mitch. thanks, man. Have thanks a good so one. much. Bye, bye. All right. Bye. That was Mitch awesome. That yeah, was I, I enjoyed that. Um, you know, just imagine sitting on the front step with John and right, Yoko. Right. I mean, this is, I couldn't <laughs> think of anything else when we were talking to him. He's like, hey, would you like to come up for some tea? No, no, nah. I'm busy. I'm nah. busy. Nah. Yeah, you know, oh, traffic boy. and, you know. Uh, yeah, please. Mac- MacGyver's on at seven. Right. Well, what go. kind of tea you got? Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, uh, thanks very much to Mitch, and thank you, Dave, for this uh, nice... Happy birthday. I, I, all right, so I've got to get someone for yeah, you now. Right. All right, I'm working on it. has to be who-related. has to be who-related. No, it doesn't have to be. Okay. Really... All right, I'll, I'll think of something. Yeah, okay. Uh, we have people to thank. Uh, first of all, we should thank our executive producer, Tony Lasana with opishows.com. Opi is hippo backwards. O-P-P-I-H shows.com. We're distributed by Ed Silla with Radio Misfits. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of The Minutia Man Celebrity Interview. The preceding was a presentation of Opie Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opie Productions. Tony, can you shut up?